Well, having finished our mission month, we're now back into the Unstoppable Gospel, which I'm really excited about. The book of Acts is an incredible book, so go ahead, please, and turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Now, I'm aware it's been a while for all of us since we've actually been in the book of Acts, and I'm aware since then we've had a number of folk join Sovereign Grace and start visiting Sovereign Grace. So let me just take a moment to bring everybody back up to speed with where on earth we are in Acts and what on earth has been going on so far. The the whole theme of the book really starts in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Dr. Luke, writing to Theophilus, says as follows, he quotes the Christ, and he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Jesus himself is now communicating to the disciples. The risen Christ has gathered his 11 disciples around him again, and he wants them to know, listen, I'm going to shortly be gone, but you guys, many of whom would have been around 21, 22 years old, young men, you guys, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and then strengthened and empowered by him, you're going to take the gospel out to Jerusalem, to Judea, and to Samaria, and indeed, to the end of the earth. Now, there was no time then in the agenda for them to be influenced by the Savior. There was no five-step program in how they're going to reach out. At that point, he is taken up on the cloud and he seats at the right hand of the Father. He's gone. Can you imagine what that would have been like for this little band of brothers, these young men? Did he just say that we're going to be the ones taking this gospel out you know, to, to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth? Well, they do what Jesus has asked. And in Acts chapter 2, they find themselves in Jerusalem praying that God really would send the Holy Spirit. And there's no doubt that he did. A sound like a rushing wind came, tongues of fire came on each of their heads. 120 of them gathered in a room, then burst out of the room. They go into the marketplace and in their different languages that God had given them in that moment, they start to proclaim the greatness of God. People are gathering around wondering, what's going on? How do these people know my language? And what is this they're proclaiming about God? And Peter stands up in their midst and starts proclaiming Christ and him crucified. And 3,000 people in a day get saved. How amazing would that be to be there? And then very quickly we see revival breaking out in Jerusalem. Day by day, multitudes are being added to this growing and gathering local church. Everything is kicking off. So much so that these 12 disciples by now realize there's no way we can do this all. So they ask for seven men to be set aside so that these men can really do the administrative tasks, so they can help the orphans, they can help the widows in particular. They can look after those in need so that these men can give themselves to the preach word and to prayer, and they can continue to proclaim and build churches. Well, as revival breaks out in Jerusalem, so does opposition. The Jewish authorities and the Sanhedrin rise against Christianity and against the disciples. And so they keep arresting them and then releasing them, arresting them and releasing them. But that comes to a climax in Acts chapter 6 when Stephen is arrested, one of the seven men chosen to serve amongst them. Well, Stephen is arrested, he's falsely accused of different things, and in Acts chapter 7 he has to give an account for what he believes, the Sanhedrin pin him against the wall. They're all gathered in this mighty enclave around him. And he starts to proclaim Christ to them. He tries to win their hearts. And he explains to them that the temple and the land and all that they had put their confidence in and their heritage, it wasn't enough. That didn't earn special favor with God. Only Christ was enough. And he starts to proclaim Christ to them. Christ died and Christ has risen and as a result, they, they believe he's blaspheming, so they grab him and they pull him out of the city and they start to stone him and he dies. Well, that really sets off a great tsunami in Jerusalem and indeed sets off great persecution in Jerusalem. And so what happens is the many thousands of Christians that have already gathered in Jerusalem have got saved and now fleeing for their lives. They're fleeing from their homes. The gospel is going to begin to go out to Judea and Samaria. The stones that Stephen got beaten with and were killed with started a gospel tsunami beyond Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 8 then we tag in with the story of Philip, one of the seven men chosen to serve. Philip loves Jesus Christ with all his heart, but he is fleeing for his life, but he does not flee the gospel. 
He takes the gospel with him as he flees Jerusalem and he finds himself in Samaria and he starts proclaiming the gospel. And revival breaks out in Samaria. Samaria, the Samaritans, they had great conflict with the Jews, great conflict with Jerusalem. But as Philip engages them, look at this, chapter 8, verse 6. And the crowds with one accord in Samaria paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Philip starts proclaiming Christ and him crucified. And this town and this city that would have been against Jerusalem just months before are now coming out with one accord because they want to hear this gospel. And revival starts to break out in Samaria. The gospel continues to go forward. Even Simon the magician, this superstar, this popular guy that everybody would know about, this man that even secular history would write about, even he started to listen and even he believed revival is breaking out in the city of Samaria. And then God interrupts Philip and sends Philip to a small road between Jerusalem and Gaza. Because there's this guy there, this Ethiopian eunuch that he wants to save, that he wants to minister to. And so let's tag in with the story in Acts chapter 8, and let's read from verse 26 through to the end of verse 40. No longer is the crowd at stake. Now it's one. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I? Unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Lord, you are, without doubt, on the move. You are the great Aslan and you take the gospel as you will and you blow it from city to city, to nation to nation, to continent to continent. Lord, would you give us eyes then to see your power today? Would you give us eyes to see your glories? Would we see through this story the treasure that it has within it? And would you give us grace then to treasure it? so that we may marvel all the more at you and the great task that you've called us to. In Jesus' precious name, amen. This week as I was one evening reading the papers, I have want the Daily Mail, I came across a picture of this old tin can that was really rusted out and it appeared, at least as what I could see, that at the bottom of this tin can was some two pence pieces. And so I was intrigued to see, oh, what was this story about? And then I noticed the title of the story was this. California couple strikes gold after finding $10 million of 19th century coins buried on their property. Story goes as follows. A Northern California couple out walking their dog in February 2014 on their gold country property stumbled across a modern-day bonanza 
Ten million dollars of rare minted, mint-conditioned gold coins buried in the shadow of an old tree. Nearly all of the 1,427 coins dating from 1847 to 1894 are in uncirculated mint condition, said David Hall, co-founder of Professional Coin Grading Service of Santa Ana, who recently authenticated them. Although the face value of the gold coins only adds up to about $27,000, some of them are so rare that they could fetch nearly $1 million apiece. Experts say it's likely that whoever owned the property 115 years earlier buried the coins as a kind of California gold rush era bank to save as an investment for a rainy day. The coins were then forgotten about for over a century until... This Northern California couple went out to walk their dog and found them in eight rusted cans, slightly sticking out of the eroded ground under an old tree. You know, I've never in my life known anyone or experienced myself what it would be like to find treasures like that. I even walked my garden this week just in case, you know. You just think, maybe this is a sign. This is a sign, Lord. Yes, I am your servant. There was nothing in my garden whatsoever. I've never had the privilege of finding a treasure like that. And yet this week as I studied this text, I have had the profound privilege of discovering the treasure that is Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. See, this story, I think, can so easily get overlooked because Acts, by very nature, is so loud, isn't it? It's the loud person that you invite to the party. That's the gospel of Acts. That's the story. It's just loud and intense. You know, the the spirit comes and fire is coming out of people's heads. People are going to get raised from the dead, as we'll see as the story goes on. 3,000 people added here, Samaria, in revival. And then you get to this little story of, oh, Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch. Yeah, nice. Let's get on to the conversion of Saul. But this story, when you pause on it, has been put here by Luke for a reason. And it's a treasure worthy of our attention. It's worthy of our affection. And so this morning I want us to pause on it because I believe, my friends, this is an absolute treasure. And I want to show you it. And I want you to marvel with me as just how incredible this story is. It teaches us of the mercy of God teaches us of the grace of God. But more than anything, it teaches us that God is on the move. And that's my title, God on the move. I have four points then. Simple points as we seek to examine and treasure this scripture together. Number one, the man. Number two, the missionaries. Number three, the meaning. And then number four, by way of conclusion, the moment. So let's look. Number one, the man. Prior to this moment in the book of Acts, it's all been about great crowds. People have been preaching to crowds and crowds have been getting saved. Not here. Here it's all about one man. And he's introduced to us in chapter 8, verse 27, as the Ethiopian eunuch. We don't even know his name. But we we do know he's an Ethiopian eunuch. He's an African man then. He's most likely a black man and he would have been a slave most likely. That's why he was a eunuch. Because slaves were castrated by very nature making them eunuchs. And yet this is a man that no doubt also carries with him great responsibility in the king's house. You see in this culture at this time, in Ethiopian culture, if you were a king then you were treated like a god. And so Because you have that God status, you wouldn't be involved in the running of the house or really even in the running of the country. That would be apportioned to Candace, which isn't the name of somebody, it's the role of somebody. It's like saying the queen mother. So the queen mother would really orchestrate the city and the house and all that does it. And she quite clearly has chosen this slave, this Ethiopian eunuch, to be her treasurer. And so this guy is introduced to us. Black man from Ethiopia who is a slave, who carries great responsibility. But what quickly becomes apparent about him is he is a man who spiritually is totally lost. I mean, he has got an incredibly traumatic background when you look at it, hasn't he? He's been castrated. He has had his genitalia removed from him. He has been emasculated. 
Can you imagine in all seriousness how shameful that would be to live with? And yet that's his story. He's aware that everybody would know what's happened to him. He carries the shame of people knowing and he carries the cultural shame of the time that he, because he couldn't have children, he couldn't carry on the family line. And that was just shameful. And he was carrying within him and in his body that shame. And quite clearly then, as a man, he's looking for answers. He's looking that there must be more to life than this. He's looking. What is this all about? What is the meaning of life? And as a God-fearer then, he makes a trip from Jerusalem to to worship the Lord. It would seem that at some point this man has decided to give Judaism a go. He's decided, possibly because of the monotheism nature of it, as opposed to the Ethiopian polytheism, which had just been many gods, that he, he's going to give Judaism a go. And so he rocks up at Jerusalem to worship. But what he would have quickly discovered is you can't worship here. Why? Because it's Deuteronomy 23. Any man that's been castrated cannot become a part of the people of God. So he was allowed sort of half in, half out. He's a semi-Jew This man would have without doubt felt lost. He was searching. But in all reality, as he returns home from Jerusalem, he would have been painfully aware that he is still an outcast. He still doesn't fit anywhere. He's still got no religion. And he's still trying to work out, my God, what is this about? And that's when you are introduced then in this book, by God's grace, to the missionaries. See, God in his grace, with this man waiting on a road between Jerusalem and Gaza, God interrupts what Philip is doing in Samaria. He interrupts the great revival that is going on there. He taps Philip on the shoulder and says, this is great, but other people can do this now. I want you to go on a road to a desert place on the way to Gaza for one man, an Ethiopian eunuch. And what you discover then as this story unfolds are the great missionaries, which is point two. The great missionaries of this text. See, the obvious missionary of this story is Philip. That's easy. But that is not the one that Luke wants you to notice. There's another one he wants you to notice. Read with me again from verse 26, the first ten verses. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked Do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Then read down verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with his scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. The obvious missionary of this story is Philip. But he is a missionary lowercase m. The profound missionary of this story that Luke is trying to present to us is God. He wants us to help us see God is on the move. And when you examine the text, you can see it so blatantly. Verse 26, the angel of the Lord, one sent by God, says to Philip. God is initiating this whole move. Verse 29, the Holy Spirit Leading Philip, communicates with Philip. God, through the Holy Spirit, now communicates to Philip because he wants him to run and join this chariot. And throughout the whole experience and the whole time, God has been preparing this Ethiopian for this divine encounter with Philip. He has him in the right place, at the right time, with the right feelings, with the right instincts, because he wants to save him. And in verse 30 is the crescendo to them that God even lays on this man's heart, not just by accident or coincidence, but in his sovereignty, to be reading Isaiah 53 at the very time that Philip comes running up alongside the chariot. That ain't no accident. This is a divine setup. 
This is God on the move. And that's what Luke wants us to see. He wants us to see this is all the Lord. Do you realize this? Theophilus, as I write to you, do you realize this is all God? He's the one doing all these things. So does Philip play a part? Is he important? You bet your life he is. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Could this man have got saved without hearing the gospel? Negative. Philip was vital in this process. The gospel needed to be proclaimed, and this Ethiopian eunuch would respond to the gospel, and it would be through the gospel that he would become a Christian. Philip was vital in the process. And what a conversation, beginning with Isaiah 53, which is what he's quoting there. What a conversation this must have been, don't you think? Turn with me to Isaiah 53. Keep your finger in Acts. But I want to show you what 2,000 years ago, these two dudes in a chariot are talking about. Because it's pretty cool. Isaiah 53, which just happens to be, in God's sovereignty, exactly what this Ethiopian eunuch is reading at this specific time. And he happens to ask Philip, you know, Philip, is this text like about Isaiah? Is it about someone else? I would have loved to have been the preacher answering that question in that moment. And Philip does that. Starting with his scripture, he begins to explain to him, oh, my friend, all what you've just read Isaiah 53, this one that had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, this one that would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces and was despised and not esteemed. Oh, when you read, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. He was wounded for our transgressions. My friend, I want you to understand as you sit in this chariot, Isaiah is not talking about himself. He's pointing to Jesus. He's pointing to one who is going to come. Jesus Christ who died for you. For all like sheep have gone astray and we esteemed him not. But God in his grace came after you. He came after and saved you. He died on a cross for you. It was him in all his grace and all his splendor that was coming after you as an unbelievable. As a Christian. He wants to save you. Through Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven. You can be adopted. You can know that heaven is your home. In fact, more than that, I just love the thought when Philip gets to Isaiah 56. I just love the thought of seeing the look on the eunuch's face. Read with me Isaiah 56, because this is so cool. Thus says the Lord, listen, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Listen. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen the eunuch's face as Philip brings that alive to him? That's why it says, and Philip starting with this scripture, began to proclaim to him. He would take him from Isaiah 53 to 54 to 55, crescendo in 56, that he's come for you. Your name is even written into a prophecy hundreds of years ago because God wanted you to know that he's coming after you. And my friend, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he has made a way that you will have a monument that will be far greater than any natural sons and daughters. He's given you a home in his kingdom that will never be removed. Isn't that beautiful? He no doubt then would have talked to this man about what it is to respond to Jesus, to put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to repent of your sin and to go forward then and be baptized. 
And having shared all these different things, we then come across verse 36. What happened to this eunuch? Did he get it? You bet your life. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. He's basically saying, everything you told me, I believe it. I'm in there. What, what is it to stop me getting baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Isn't that wonderful? Was Philip important in the story? He was vital in the story. Philip was the one communicating, by God's grace, the gospel with this man. He proclaimed it clearly and boldly and courageously. And in a moment, this man's eyes were opened and he wanted to get baptized about 10 minutes later because he believed it was true. And he was dramatically and radically in that moment saved. And yet to understand Acts chapter 8, you have to understand who the main missionary is. And it's God. Philip was important, but God was vital. Bringing an angel of the Lord, sending him by God to communicate to Philip, I want you at the right place at the right time. The Holy Spirit communicating in Philip's heart. Now go, run, there's the chariot. Cultivating this Ethiopian's life so that he would be in the right place at the right time. And even causing this guy, this Ethiopian eunuch, at this very moment to be reading Isaiah 53, one of the directest links to Christ and him crucified in the entire Old Testament. God's the great missionary. He's the one on the move. He is the divine one that is bringing forward his plan. And in the same way that Jesus, when he walked the earth, was seeking and saving the lost, what Luke is trying to help us see is that he's still doing that. He's still doing it. He's still operating. And the gospel is still going forward. God himself is on the move. He's still directing. He's still preparing. He's still affecting. This whole thing has been a divine setup. And that is exactly what Luke wants Theophilus, and indeed then us, to see. That's why he details it with nuance and emphasis, because he wants us to see this is God. He's on the move. So number three, what's the meaning then? Why is this text here? Why not just go from, you know, the end of chapter 7, just to 9? Why is this specifically here? See, as Luke writes this letter on a parchment for the most excellent Theophilus, he is genuinely not seeking to issue Theophilus with some lengthy and data-filled history lesson. All right, And you must understand that. He's not like, you know what, Theophilus? I know. Um, this will cheer you up. Yeah, the gospel. Yeah, really interesting. It went from Jerusalem. Yeah, there was these tongues of fire thing. and went from Jerusalem and Samaria and Judea and then to the end of the earth. And you know, it's really interesting. So pop it on your shelf. And if anybody asks, you know, it would really be helpful. That's not what he wrote it for. He wrote it by very nature. He was seeking to give Theophilus certainty concerning, concerning all the things that he's been taught. We learn that in Luke chapter 1 verse 4. He wants to give Theophilus absolute certainty in these things. Theophilus has clearly been taught some of these things. And what Luke is doing is saying, Theophilus, everything you've been taught, it's true. Luke is the most excited guy around and he wants to give Theophilus certainty. He wants to build faith into Theophilus. His issue here isn't knowledge. His issue here is faith and expectation and enthusiasm. That is why, that's the whole tone of this entire book. He's trying to communicate to Theophilus. Theophilus, you know what you've heard about the greatness of God? Oh, he is. He's amazing. Check this out. See how this happened through the story? See how God went forward? Theophilus, everything you've heard about Jesus, his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. Theophilus, that's exactly how it all happened. I interviewed people and I walked with people and I sat with people and as they told me stories and I heard of the witnesses, it's all true, Theophilus. And Theophilus, that's not all. My first book, Luke... It's just about what he did do. But this second book, Acts, is what about he's still doing. What he went, went on to do. For through his ascension, he then equipped these disciples, just 12 dudes. 
To take the gospel of Jesus Christ and to take it forth. And Theophilus, I want you to know, that's exactly what happened. There was revival in Jerusalem and there was revival in Samaria. And God, by his grace, even did this great divine setup for an Ethiopian eunuch. Theophilus, God is on the move. And Theophilus, I want you to know with certainty, God is great and Jesus is alive and Jesus is still on the move. Understanding that puts a different complexion on the book of Acts, doesn't it? If we go away just thinking, how interesting is that? Yes, God gave us this lovely little history book. Well, there we go then. That's how it went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Thanks. Then we will have completely missed the point. Because Luke is trying to give us certainty. He's trying to give us faith. He's trying to instill the greatness of God into our lives and help us see that God is indeed on the move. Is it true then that in part this book, this part of the book, is to help us see how the gospel went from Jew to Jew-Gentile to Gentile next? Yeah. And he's doing that. But it's way more than that. He's seeking to give Theophilus, without doubt, certainty in the things that he has been taught about the Lord. And so what then is the treasure of this text? Is it just a history lesson? No. In a sentence, this is why this text, I believe, is here. It's to issue us with a truth. What truth? This truth. That the gospel truly is unstoppable. And in it, And through it and around it, God is always on the move. That's why it's here. That the gospel, Theophilus, I want you to understand the gospel that you believe in, that you've heard about. Theophilus, it's unstoppable. The Jews and the Samaritans never got on, Theophilus. And yet Philip, this Jew, rocks up in Samaria and he humbles himself and he starts preaching the gospel and they don't stone him. In one accord they come out to listen to him and revival breaks out, Theophilus. And Theophilus, God then in his grace, takes Philip and he stands him before an Ethiopian eunuch, a guy who was lost and in a divine sovereign move. He's in the right place at the right time. And this guy who is lost, a Jewish Gentile, he he is lost and God saves him. He so happens to be in Isaiah 53. Can you imagine that, Theophilus? Theophilus, the gospel is unstoppable. No ethnicity, Generation, gender, slave nor free can stand up against the glories of the gospel. Theophilus, the gospel is truly unstoppable. And in it, through it, and around it, God is always on the move. That's the treasure of this text. And what a treasure it is, don't you think? And it's a treasure that we need today, isn't it? The reason why God has inscribed it now into Scripture, why he breathed it in the first place, was not just for the Theophilus. It was for me and you too. See, we need to know, church, that God in his gospel is unstoppable, don't we? We need to know that. And I know we get taught that a lot. And you think, you know, he's told us this before, that the gospel is unstoppable. I'm going to keep telling us until we believe it. And the moment we believe it is when we start acting it. The gospel is unstoppable. Those people that we're trying to reach out to and you think they're just never, ever going to respond. You hear about the Sydney Mardi Gras and you think, yeah, it's a difficult city right now. I can't imagine it. And then you read about Samaria and your faith is built that God can do great things through the advancement of the gospel. When he takes the gospel, nothing will stand against it. No body No heritage, no understanding, no gender, no sexual preference. God in his gospel is powerful and nothing can stop it. But more than that, we also need to know that in it, and through it and around it, God is always on the move. We forget that, don't we? It's only what Jesse pointed out at the start. That God commissions us. And we can so easily walk out the door then and not hear the rest. Rather than understanding he commissions us, And then he says, and lo, I'll be with you to the end of the age. And as Acts then unfolds, you realize he's not just with us. He's directing us. Divine appointments. 
bringing certain people across our paths at certain times because he is going to influence them with the gospel. The divine setups. And they still happen today. By way of conclusion then, an application, number four, the moment. How do we treasure this precious truth today? How do we apply this truth to our lives in a way that honors the Lord? How do we ensure that we not just go, yeah, that's great, really interesting story. And back then, God was on the move. And back then, you know, in it and around it and through it, he he was, you know, involved. That's really interesting. How do we avoid thinking like that and realize, no, this is still communicating that same truth to us today. How do we practically treasure this? Well, two things. Number one. So I mean to you, the first way we treasure this truth that the gospel truly is unstoppable and that in it and through it and around it, God is always on the move. First thing we can do is this. Number one, we growingly look to the Lord as the one who still guides today. We growingly look to, to him as the great one and as the one who in all reality still guides us today. See, I think one of the unfortunate things about Christianity, particularly Reformed Christianity, is I think we live as if God is in some way changed. That he's in some way distanced himself, so he operated like this in the Bible, but he doesn't do that anymore. You know, we're just the word. Really? I'm the word too, and I want to apply it and realize how it affects my life and see how it operates, see how God still operates We can think that God has distanced himself or somehow changed in the way he guides and operates with his people. But in all reality, he hasn't. God is still alive. The same Holy Spirit that was in Philip's life is in your life. He hasn't changed. He didn't communicate one way to Philip and go, but not for you now, you know, it's awkward. He's still the same. Whoever thought he changed. He still operates exactly the same. And one of my prayers then for us as a church is that we would grasp that and we would have eyes to see this. God still guides. He still leads. He still directs our paths. See, one of the ways we treasure this then, I believe, is that our circumstances, we stop just thinking of them as absolute flukes and start to realize God is involved in those things. We need to expect the unexpected, folks. Those things that happen in your life that you just think, I'm such an unlucky person. Maybe not. Maybe God is deliberately allowing or causing those things because there's people along the path that he wants you to meet with. How do you think Philip and these people felt when Stephen was stoned and the great persecution started and they had to pack up their entire houses and leave the city with haste? It would have been so easy for them, if that was us in Sydney, it would have been so easy to think, as we're sitting in Newcastle, oh, this sucks, doesn't it? You know, I had a lovely house before, and God, God's probably gone. He must be punishing me or disciplining me in some ways. We would have completely missed the point. Yet Philip realizes, I don't get this, but Lord, I trust you, and I'm so amazed with the gospel. Wherever you rock me up, I'm going to start telling people about Jesus. It's exactly what he does, and revival breaks out in Samaria. My friends, maybe on those days when you're late for work because there's a huge traffic jam on the way and you arrive late for work and you end up in the elevator with somebody that you've never met before, maybe that's because you are late for work because you're meant to be communicating with them and that God's divinely setting this moment up for you. Maybe those things that happen in our lives in adversity that we think, where is God in all this? Maybe it's not about the problem, maybe it's about the people. Maybe it's less about your problem. Maybe in his sovereignty he's allowed that to take place because there are people that you will meet as a result. You go for a course and you really want it. It's on a Wednesday night. It worked perfectly. But through a series of events you don't get in and now you're on a Tuesday. But Tuesday's a bit inconvenient. What do you do? Suck it up and just go on a Tuesday as if, you know, well, a bit of a shame. Or do you go in faith on a Tuesday believing just maybe God's got people here that he wants me to meet? Maybe he's bringing people across my path that he wants to be meet. That job that you go for and you really want it and you realize it is a perfect fit. And then God doesn't open the door for you and you think, what, what is up with this? This sucks. 
Well, just maybe it's because there's another job over here and it has a woman in it who is searching for the Lord Jesus Christ and she doesn't know him, but she's desperate and God is going to weave you into her path and you're going to communicate the gospel to her and she's going to get dramatically saved. Do you see this? God guides our circumstances. He's involved in our circumstances. Where you live, the friends you have, the clubs you joined, the adversities you face, they are never an accident. God's involved. And if we just dare to believe it, how different our days would look, don't you think? Philip believed it. One way we can treasure this then, I think, is by believing it and realize that we can expect the unexpected in our circumstances. That's not all. I think we can also expect the unexpected when it comes to the Holy Spirit actually talking to us. Everybody theologically that I've met believes that the Holy Spirit is alive. They believe theologically that the Holy Spirit speaks. And yet they can be nervous of actually believing that the Holy Spirit has communicated anything to them. That prompting. You know, I don't hear an audible voice personally when the Holy Spirit speaks. I wish I did. You know, sometimes you talk to people, particularly growing up Pentecostal, and you think, well, you know, and you chat to them, and they say, well, then I said this to God, and he said this, and I said this, and you think, crikey, he never talks to me like that. You know, this is like awkward. You know, it's a real problem, and maybe I'm not even a Christian. That's not the way he talks to me. But I think what he does do is prompt And what he does do is open our eyes at different times and compels us to different things. And I grew up with that. And one of the things I've been really convicted about this week and and excited about at the same time in the treasure of Acts 8 was my upbringing. See, I grew up in a very charismatic church. And when we preached on the charismatic gifts a, a few months ago, you know my differences maybe to how I grew up. But one of the things I absolutely loved about my upbringing is people believed in God. They believed he was on the move. They believe he speaks today and they stepped out with that motive in mind. I loved that. And I saw people become Christians as a result of it. I remember one time with my auntie and uncle who were visiting us from Newcastle and we went to this church barbecue, just a normal church barbecue, hanging out. And one of the guys... um, that nobody knew my auntie and uncle at that time. One of the guys in the church that I grew up in in Spalding came over to my dad and said, look, I just think the Holy Spirit's given me a word for, you know, Ian and Joyce. Could I, could I share it with them? And, oh, got to be a brave moment, eh? And my dad said, sure, you know, if the Holy Spirit's given you something to share, I'd love you to do that. And he sat my auntie and uncle down and said, look, I'm a Christian. I believe in God and I believe sometimes he gives us promptings and things and tells us things. And I just want you to know, I, I believe the Lord's put on my heart for you that he knows you're trying for children and that he will give the desire of your heart. Can I pray with you? Which he did. That's pretty full on. I was about eight years old at the time. I was in the car with my auntie and uncle on the way back to my house, which wasn't far. Nothing was far in Spalding. But in between like one door and another door being about 45 seconds, the communication that went on between them two on the front seat, unaware that I'm really there because I'm just a kid, i never forget it. My auntie saying to my uncle, how did he know that? No one knows that. God must be alive. Within a few days, having had the gospel communicated to them by my parents, they gave their lives to become Christians. They started to follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They still follow him to this day. All because a guy called Mike at South Island Community Church at a barbecue was willing to open his mouth and say, I just have a sense that this might be what the Lord's got on his heart for you. Does that scare me? Oh, yeah. Can it go wrong? Yeah. But it can go very right. And if we believe the God of the Bible still exists, if we believe he actually communicates, we need to live that way. You know, so often I think we can just quench the Holy Spirit because we have a sense of something and then we think, ah, it's probably just me. Maybe it wasn't just you. Maybe he wants you to run after that chariot. Instead of you thinking, oh, I can't run after it, I'm going to look a bit silly. We just think, I'm going to give it a go. And, hey, how are you going? And, oh, I'm just reading Isaiah 53. Can you help me? Yeah! But that takes some bottle to run after the chariot in the first place, does it not? 
My friends, I want to encourage you. God is involved in our circumstances. They're not accidents. And we need to expect the unexpected within them. And as we start our days and go through our days, I want to encourage you to walk with the Spirit. Paul always exhorts us to walk with the Spirit. What is he on about? You communicate to him. Lord, I've arrived at work today. Lord, help me. I want to be sensitive to you. If there's anybody you want me to communicate with, anybody you want me to reach out to, to encourage, to help, Lord, make that clear to me. And Lord, this is what I pray. Lord, give me really big signposts because I am slow. I do. I really do. I ask the Lord, try and make it as clear as possible because I'm slow. And he does. There are times in my life that I could take you to where I've had a sense of something. I've gone and done it. I remember just before, just before I had my appendicitis in America, um, and I, so on a Friday, I was told in a hospital room that I may die. And that's communicated to my wife. It had been my wife for that point 12 months. But five days earlier than that, I woke up in the middle of the night with a sense from the Lord that Emma needed to study the sovereignty of God. So I woke her up and said, I just believe the Lord's put on my heart that you need to study the sovereignty of God. And probably go back to sleep now, but just wanted you to know. <laughs> Five days later, literally, I'm in a hospital bed, told by a doctor he may die. That's the Lord. I've experienced these things in my life. And my friends, if we would just be sensitive to the Lord, if we'll stop quenching him and be willing to go, you know what, I just have this sense and I may be wrong, but I want to tell you anyway. I believe more often than not, that will be the Lord. And what we will discover is that he's on the move using us. How exciting is that? One of the lasting treasures then, I believe, of this text is that we grow in looking to the Lord as the one who still guides us today. Secondarily, by way of application, by way of treasuring, we growingly proclaim the gospel as the power of God unto salvation. We growingly proclaim it as the power of God. My friends, these two things come hand in hand. We rely on God, realizing our circumstances are not just a fluke, but he's involved in them and guiding them and using them. And then we depend upon him, saying, Lord, would you use me? Would you help me to communicate? Lord, give me eyes to see where you're at work and assist me. But when that happens, we must not choke with the good stuff. Imagine if Philip had gone through all that and he gets in the chariot and says, oh, it's a lovely seat. This is very nice. And the guy says, hey, I'm reading Isaiah 53. And, you know, is this about Isaiah or about God? And, you know, you know it's an interesting question, but I feel like I'd just love to get to know you a bit more first. And, you know, I, I prefer Jesus, friend of sinners. I prefer to get to know you. And so tell me a bit about your life. And, and yet we do that, don't we? We miss opportunities because we assume, well, I haven't built the bridge for the gospel yet. There was no bridge here. I haven't befriended this person for long enough. This guy just says hello. My friends, we need to be confident, realizing the gospel is unstoppable. We need to stop mincing around with it sometimes. Being aware this is just crazy. We're taking too long to communicate. There is no power in being nice. There's no power in arguments. But there is power in the gospel. When we communicate the gospel, in a moment, Jerusalem is having revival. In a moment, Samaria is having revival. In a moment, an Ethiopian eunuch has a revival. And as we'll see next week, in a moment, a guy that is at the start of chapter 8, standing there, ravaging the church and laughing as Stephen is being stoned, in a moment, is saved. Luke wants Theophilus to realize the gospel is unstoppable. And God is in it and around it and through it. He's always on the move. And I believe it's here because God wants us to know exactly the same thing. My friends, I want to encourage you that not many of us are likely to find any treasures in our garden. Sorry, but true. Not many of us are likely to come across stuff. And please don't at the end of this go out and buy one of those metal detectors because you just sense that was the Lord. No, he's not. That's you. We're not likely to be finding anything in our gardens or coming across any great treasures in our lives. It's highly unlikely. But in God's profound kindness, we do get to unearth treasures like this one in Acts chapter 8. And what a treasure it is, don't you think? It's here for a purpose, to help us see that the gospel is unstoppable and to help us see that in it and through it and around it, God is always on the move. And So my friends, I want to encourage you. Would we treasure then this truth in our lives? 
Would we growingly listen for the Lord and be aware he's involved in our lives? And when the opportunity arises, then would we be quick to share the gospel because that is the power of God and the salvation for all those who believe. Would we play our parts? Would each one of us, as the angels in the heavenly realms, look on to see God's manifold wisdom? Having seen Adam and Eve and Noah and Isaac and Abraham and Jacob and Judah and David and Solomon and Peter, and Paul, and Philip, having seen all those men and women deliver their lines. Would we deliver our lines now? As they peer on, would they see us delivering our lines? And as we do, would people get saved? And would God's grace abound to us all? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you are... Without doubt, an incredible God. Lord, what an absolute exhilaration to be able to spend time in Acts chapter 8 and realize this is how powerful you are. This is how great you are. And you have not died. And you have not changed. You're still on the move today. Oh Lord, would you give us eyes to to see this? Would you give us ears to hear this? Lord, would our lives be transformed? Would our lives be affected? Would we growingly treasure the gospel and be aware that our lives are not just an accident, but that you're involved? Your fingerprints of grace are knitted in all over our lives and there are divine setups ahead of each and every one of us that are divine setups set up so that we can communicate the gospel. Lord, would you give us grace for all these things? Lord, would you forgive us for times when we've missed it? Times when we have ran along the chariot in faith and then when asked, blown it. Lord, I thank you that none of us need to be condemned at the end of this service. We may be convicted, but would we take that conviction and run to the cross and then enthuse, turn and leave these doors full of faith as we move forward? And Lord, as you're on the move, would you allow us the privilege of being a part? Being a part in your great plan that started in Genesis chapter 1. That continued in the Gospels. And that continued through the disciples who represented us as men who were called to take the Gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And Lord, as we now stand at the ends of the earth, help us to play our parts. And would grace abound to us all as we do. In Jesus' name, amen.